Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The International Monetary Fund and World Bank, they are holding their spring meetings virtually. Uh, let's get a sense of what might be on the agenda. We welcome Tobias Adrian. He's a financial counselor and director of the International Monetary and Capital Markets Department uh, for the IMF. Tobias, give us a sense. What is on the agenda at the IMF this week, um, you know, as we start to emerge from this pandemic? Yes, thanks so much uh, for this uh, important question. So what we are seeing is that there's a recovery that is taking place globally, but it is an asynchronous recovery. Um, so uh, we have all followed uh, the fiscal package in the U.S., and of course, uh, that has shifted expectations about the, about the recovery in the U.S. forward. Uh, but uh, the recovery is not as fast and as strong elsewhere in the world. So uh, this is why asynchronous is, is, is the word of the day. And uh, when we look out two years into the future, what we see is that uh, the, the most advanced economies in the world have uh, the lowest output gaps. Uh, while emerging markets and low-income countries have larger output gaps relative to the pre-pandemic uh, expectations of where these economies would be. Uh, so basically, uh, the, uh, the more advanced you are, the more uh, uh, the expectation is that the recovery will take place, uh, will uh, get to healing. So what can be done about it? What can the IMF and World Bank recommend or, or even do in terms of action? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, of course, uh, we are doing three things. So, number one, uh, we are lending to countries uh, that are in need. Uh, so, last year, we did rapid financing uh, with about 100 countries around the world. We have never covered so many countries in terms of help with the rapid financing. Secondly, we also have programs uh, where we basically... Uh, you know, lend money and help uh, economies uh, to get back on track. And then lastly, we give policy advice. Uh, so this is what is called our surveillance, uh, and we give very granular policy advice to our entire membership of 190 countries. Tobias, what impact, if any at all, can the IMF and the World Bank have on um, countries' ability to get inoculation, to get vaccines into the market. Here from the, the states, uh, you know, we're just uh, you know, shocked and, at the delays that we're seeing uh, in Western Europe. Is there anything that can be done from your perspective? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Of course, this crisis will only be over once the pandemic is in check, and uh, this is where the vaccines uh, are so important. Uh, and uh, yes, the rollout in the U.S. has been uh, has been very uh, effective and very fast. And uh, you know we are getting uh, to numbers that are that are getting reassuring. Uh, but the rollout is much uh, slower in Europe. Uh, we do expect that this is going to accelerate, uh, but it is somewhat disappointing 
uh, how long it has taken so far. But what is important to, to keep in mind is that in between Europe and the U.S., uh, we have less than a billion people. In the world out there are 7 billion people in total. And, uh, you know, really the end of this pandemic is going to happen once uh, the pandemic is conquered everywhere. And uh, the U.S. and Europe is only a very small uh, share in terms of total numbers. And, you know, as long as COVID is alive, there will be mutations and mutations can be threats to everybody. It's still kind of shocking that the famously efficient Germans still haven't managed to get it off the ground. They don't even seem to have any kind of plan as to how they're going to vaccinate their people. I saw today that the U.S. has now fully vaccinated almost as many people as there are adults in Germany and this isn't, you know, unique to Germany. The French also are failing miserably at this effort. Why is such an advanced economy doing so poorly when it comes to getting shots and putting them in arms? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question. And uh, let me let me uh, step back for a moment and just point out that, um, you know, the, the Pfizer vaccine, which is one of the uh, predominant vaccines around the world. It's produced in both the U.S. and Germany. And of course, it was developed by, by German scientists here. And so uh, I happen to be in Germany just now. I'm German originally. I'm that, also That's US why I'm citizen. bugging you about it. You know, not because <laughs> yeah, it's a capital market I understand. <laughs> and, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And it is indeed uh, 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 worrisome. And I, I think there are two things that come together. So number one, uh, the U.S. is just very good. Even the U.S. government is very good at writing contracts and making sure that their population is getting the vaccines first. And uh, uh, the European politicians, uh, including uh, the Germans, but also more broadly, uh, you know, the, the EC as well, have, have not perhaps been quite as aggressive in terms of the way in which the contracts were structured. And secondly, I mean, the U.S. did not allow any shipment outside of the U.S. until uh, the vaccinations are, are sufficient in the U.S., whereas uh, in Europe, including in Germany, uh, actually shipments have gone to poorer countries. And, you know, that is, of course, a good thing for the rest of the world, uh, but it is to the detriment of, of the German population. So, you know, there's some balance here uh, that uh, needs to be struck. Very interesting. That is fascinating. So, I mean, it is, I guess, in holding with the kind of multilateral approach that yep. uh, Chancellor Merkel has embraced. Um, it's just frustrating, I guess, for the people of Germany. But if it's helpful for the world, well, that's that's got to be good news in the end. And I guess we can take it a little bit. Um, Tobias, thanks so much for joining us and, and answering my kind of left field <laughs> questions there. Tobias Adrian is the director of IMF Capital Markets. He is not responsible for the vaccine rollout in Germany or the EU. IMF meetings kick off. And we'll be following them very closely. Matt, back in the day, uh, I worked at Credit Suisse First Boston, did a stint there. Uh, boy, and in the media space, we killed it. We made tons of money. We had great equity platform, great high yield, uh, some of the best bankers uh, on the street. And we made lots of money. It was a great place to work. But at year end, there was always something that would muddy up the bonus works. It was a bad trade here, uh, a bad private investment there. Uh, it seemed like there's always something. That is still the case. Credit Suisse today taking a 4.7 
billion dollar hit. Let's break it down with a couple of experts. Shanali Basket, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News, and Allison Williams, uh, senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who's covered the sector for decades. Uh, Shanali, I want to start with you. What's the latest here? We got some management changes. We got a big hit to the earnings. What's the latest? Yeah, you have a spate of management changes, really, more than a half dozen out the door. Paul, that's an, a staggering amount of change at one time for one of the largest banks in the world. You have the chief risk officer out. You have the head of investment banking out um, and a new guard taking shape at a time where they still have some cleanup work to do. So what do we know about the new guard, Allison? So I think that, uh, you know, the new guard is, is sort of, I think, an interim placeholder at the moment. I think the most important thing was that management, when they came out and announced this big loss, had to at least show that they were starting the process to make change. So the management changes are, are part part of it. Um, it's, it's probably not surprising that, that the business head, um, as well as the, the, the chief of risk, um, are those that are departing the, the firm, given given the circumstances. Um, but I do think, um, especially given all the numerous issues, that there there needs to be sort of a, a deeper postmortem, not just on this situation, but the green sill situation, and then sort of broadly, what are the risks um, and controls that are in place at the We firm. were just talking about a postmortem, I feel like, last year, and <laughs> uh, bringing in a new CEO to make changes. So... Has he avoided the axe somehow, Schnally? Uh, investors are trying to give him a grace period, it looks like, to, to make the changes, to give him time to make the changes that the bank needs. Here's the thing, to Allison's point, a lot of these people are interim, right? You have a man who's taking over as chief risk officer in the interim who was previously the chief risk officer. <laughs> the, the other person you have taking over the investment bank who's particularly interesting is Christian Meissner, who is a former executive at Bank of America. He's new to the bank. And, you know, Credit Suisse was actually doing all right in investment banking until all of this had happened. This Archego scandal happened in the prime brokerage division, and the green cell issue happened in the asset management division largely, where we saw the, uh, saw the head of asset management really, um, you know, take accountability for this too, right? So you're seeing many divisions of this bank face issues in regard to risk management, and, you know, the investors now are paying for it. Allison, you've covered this stock, this company for decades, currently at Bloomberg Intelligence, but before that, when you're an analyst at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, you've seen uh, this company's performance versus its peers. It, what is it about Credit Suisse where they always seem to find themselves in trouble one way or another? Well, there, there are, I mean, there, there is something different in terms of Credit Suisse and their mix. So they do generally excel in, in products such as leverage finance um, and, and things that, you know, a year ago when we saw big marks at Credit Suisse versus some others, that to me is something you would expect given its mix because um, in, a, in, you know, a quarter like March of 2020 when spreads are blowing out, um, you know, that's the nature of the business that will be profitable over time but can be more volatile in, you know, Sitting, sitting here today um, with, with a much more significant loss, um, which, which I think has different meaning, I think this does go more towards, um, you know, the DNA of the bank. And, and that's, and that's what will be interesting to address. And I'm sure that the bank is already 
working with regulators with regard to this issue. Obviously, legal risks are going to be something to linger, but I think what's going to be important is is working with the regulators um, to get the processes in place, and, you know, there could be some, some sort of trailing impacts, I think, with regard to um, capital and making sure that they've, they shored up um, financially. I mean, the good news is that they had the money to withstand this hit, um, but what are the operational safeguards and then what are the financial safeguards going forward? Shanali, are you hearing from prime brokerages that they are going through their books looking for other potential wangs? Well, you know what's funny about this also? It, it, you're, you're worried about other clients, of course. I mean, who's taking on a lot of risk? Do we need to clamp down on them? But the other thing about it is Credit Suisse, it was, you know, not in the top, top tier of prime brokerage. Generally, when these kinds of things happen, clients look around, everyone looks around and says, okay, do we flock to safety? And so at the end of the day, do Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs come out even stronger from this? Do they gain more clients? Uh, that's that's the big question moving forward. What type of reputational hit is Credit Suisse going to take among clients for these losses? And then also, there's a financial reason for clients to keep an eye out. They are um, their outlook is negative for Fitch and S and P. If they are downgraded it makes uh, counterparty risk that much more of an issue, right? So that's something to watch for moving forward. All right, Shanali, thanks very much for joining us. Shanali Basick there, our Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg Television. Allison Williams, our BI, Bloomberg Intelligence Banks analyst. Let's get over now to Marvin Lowe, senior global macro strategist at State Street to talk about, well, first off, Marvin, the U.S. economy has really caught my eye lately. Um, the jobs number was amazing. We had the best ISM number, uh, manufacturing number in March since 1983. And then we just got the best services PMI number of all time. Um, how much growth do you expect out of the U.S. and how much inflation? Yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, we're finally getting to a point where um, prospects are certainly brightening. And, um you know we're 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 getting to a point where the reopenings are, are starting to really accelerate. Um, I, I think I think the numbers I think the numbers that are expected are 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 reasonable given um, everything that we know. So six and a half percent GDP uh, for the year and an inflation rate that um, will certainly spike in the short term, but start to come back once those base effects get lower. Um, and and I think the challenge for all of us looking at the markets and various asset classes is, is trying to determine what's priced in. And a lot has been priced in. I mean, a lot of good news um, since the beginning of the year, and, it, and it's coming to fruition, which is, which is you know, really encouraging. Yeah, Marvin, that's kind of where I wanted to go. I mean, I think the bull case is uh, very well known on the street with the accommodative Fed, with the fiscal stimulus, with the reopening trade and, and all of those issues. And the, obviously the vaccination the metrics are trending very positively here. How do you get a sense of what is in fact priced in? Do you look at valuation? Do you look at a PE ratio for the S&P? How do you kind of or what do you look at to get a sense of kind of where we are in terms of valuation? Yeah, I, I, I look at the world from a from a cross asset class perspective. Um, you know what happens in the rates market and what happens in the currency markets um, matter. I think to how you approach risk assets. Um, and you know, since last Friday, since the near million uh, jobs post, since um, the, the record PMIs that 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 you were um, uh, that you were referencing, we've had very little movement on those other markets. Certainly, equities are supportive by 
the accommodative Fed, by the fiscal stimulus, by the fact that um, we're, we're talking about um, more fiscal spending. But um, the stability in those other markets, I think, points to a lot of the good news already in there. Um, and with a still negative um, real yield, in other words, a repressive um, interest rate environment, equities wind up being one of those asset classes that can, that can continue to benefit from this kind of broader uh, supportive environment. So when does that turn around? Um, you know what? How high do we I have to get, Marvin? Yeah, I, I think I think interest rate, I think interest rates are are, are going to be the key. You know, once once um, you wind up with a rates market that is not repressive, once you get um, real yields closer to to neutral rather than the minus sixty basis points that that we're in, it's it's a legitimate substitute for um, uh, for other risk assets at that point. Um, I look at it from 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 that perspective. Multiple expansion can certainly continue to to occur, and 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 you know I, I would make that part of my thought process as I. I'll look at risk assets over the course of the next few quarters. Marvin, you know, a lot of folks are, are, are looking for yield. They're looking for return. They're willing to take maybe more risk as, as we come out on the other side of this pandemic. And some folks are Certainly Bill Wang me. was really willing to take more risk. What's that? Certainly Bill Wang was willing to take yes, more risk. Was. Yes, he was. And concentrated <laughs> risk at that. Uh, Bill, um, Marvin, just wondering what your thoughts are on, on emerging markets uh, for returns. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I do I do think that um, we have to parcel the emerging markets into those that might benefit from reflation versus those that are, you know, potentially looking at higher inflation. Um, the, the, the the backdrop the backdrop is is still is still positive, kind of given um, again that reach for yield and um, the positive risk environment that that you're talking about, but. Um, each one of those emerging markets are unique, and I think you have to ultimately analyze the ones that might benefit more in a reflationary environment where we start layering in infrastructure uh, discussions as part of, um, as part of the, the summer to early fall uh, action items that come out of Washington. Yeah, the dollar plays a huge role in EM investments, of course. And at the beginning of the year, one thought the dollar was on its way down. It's turned out to have a fantastic quarter and... It doesn't look like it's going to let up anytime soon. How does that, how does that play a role in what you look at globally? Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. So, so the dollar winds up being the most, um, you know, one of the most important um, uh, factors in in how well the emerging market discussion occurs. Um, we had an adjustment that occurred in the first quarter with regard to how U.S. growth was going to um, really beat expectations. You know, whether it was fiscally driven um, as well as kind of the the better vaccine um, news. If in fact, a lot of that is priced in. We could start getting back to looking at the dollar as a more stable type of asset class, which I think the market, which I think is encouraging for the market at this point. Um, if if we've priced in um, as much as we can from a Fed rate hike perspective, um, and, and we you know uh, need catalysts to get it a little bit further, we could start building uh, other scenarios around EM eventually. Um, uh, finding you know finding some traction where where it's been a struggle for the for the past few months. Hey, Marvin, thirty seconds. Uh, as you talk to your PMs at State Street, what's the most exciting area that you're hearing from your fund managers? Um, you, you know, I, st- I still I still think broad risk is, is something that uh, is, is something that's that's encouraging for folks. There is a lot more discussion about alternative investments. You know, certainly certainly the uh, the crypto spaces is is is, is interesting um, as a potential asset class to think about. But um, it really is trying to uh, continue along with this with this risk discussion that's been going on. 
Marvin Lowe, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate chatting with you and getting your perspective on global markets. Marvin Lowe, Senior Global Macro Strategist at State Street. They are located in Boston. They are one of the mega players, Matt, up in Boston. When you go up there and you see the big mutual fund complexes, as I did for many years as an analyst, State Street is an absolute anchor meeting. Uh, They have certainly a global view. I'm super pumped for our next guest. Panos Panay joins us right now. He's Senior Vice President for Global Strategy and Innovation at the Berkeley College of Music. What does music have to do with innovation, you ask? Well, he's the co-author of Two Beats Ahead, What Musical Minds Teach Us About Innovation. His co-author on that book, Michael Hendricks, I'm assuming no relation to the great... Guitarist. Um, Panos, thanks so much for, for joining us. Interestingly, I was just reading about Will I Am um, from the Black uh, from the Black Eyed Peas teaming up with um, Honeywell to bring out a super mask, a high tech, you know, uh, COVID mask, essentially. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. And how come no one else thought of that already? What is, what is your book um, telling us in terms of musicians and innovation? Thank you so much. Uh, and that is a fascinating pairing, I think, very illustrative. Uh, well, the book is all about the mindsets that musicians have that we believe are transferable and applicable in other, other domains. The way that musicians collaborate, the way that they listen to the environment around them, the way that they create through experimentation or remixing, or even the way that they're able to go out there and connect with audiences. I believe these are all mindsets and skills that we can all uh, learn from. All right, Panos, it's interesting here as we continue to deal with this pandemic. uh, So many groups, so many people have seen their lives disrupted. Give us a sense of how the average professional musician, uh, what has he or she had to do to kind of make it through this pandemic? What's, it, what's been fascinating about musicians in the music industry is if you think about it, whether it's pandemics or whether it's technological shifts or whether it's societal shifts, uh, the music industry and musicians uh, in general have a history of going through massive disruption, but somehow being the first to often embrace new technologies and new means of connecting with audiences. And this goes back to the earlier days of radio, television, cable TV, social media, if you remember, musicians were the first to embrace uh, social media, subsequently streaming and even the subscription models. And now with COVID, we're seeing musicians embrace all kinds of new platforms like Clubhouse, TikTok, Twitch, and really taking their art form in ways of connecting with audiences in a different, in a different way. Uh, we see a level of resilience, frankly, that I believe we can all uh, learn from. And absolutely, the music community has been devastated by COVID with respect to losing, in some ways, the last bastion of income that they had by performances. Um, But on the other hand, we're seeing this creativity, imagination, and the desire to connect really guiding their choices. And I think we can learn a lot from them. I have to say, my my kid brother is a guitarist uh, and a musician, producer in, in New York, and I've always been struck by his... Um, electrical engineering skills, right? Same is true for for Hendrix and, and a number of other guitarists. They have to understand the um, science of amplification, and they they play with it to to kind of blow our minds. But I've also been struck by you know his whole crew. Um, 
the way that they've innovated to create new revenue streams has been astounding. And are we going to see the music industry change in any significant way due to the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. You're already seeing it uh, change. Uh, first of all, you're seeing growth for five consecutive years in a row. So that's a new chapter that's being written when it comes to, uh, to music. But you're also seeing, again, all kinds of new platforms being embraced by uh, the, music, uh, the music industry as a means of connecting with audiences. Uh, I mentioned a few, a few before, but then we're also seeing all these amazing collaborations that are occurring that just never happened before. So we're seeing a community coalesce, uh, be able to be giving in ways that we haven't seen before. Uh, and I am convinced that it's not just new technologies, but new creative expressions that will come out of this. Panos, talk to us about the ability of musicians and songwriters to get pay- to get paid. That's always been a challenge, and even more so in this digital area. But I know Apple's invested in something called United Masters. Talk to us about that and how that might help musicians and artists uh, actually get compensated for their work. Absolutely. Well, we're... Uh, obviously, with the migration to streaming, the music community has um, uh, lost a significant amount of its of its uh, revenue that it used to earn from CDs uh, as well as uh, other sources. Now, uh, with streaming, I think it takes about three thousand streams an hour on Spotify for the average musician to earn minimum wage. So, oh, clearly, that has that has to change. We have 60,000 songs a day that are uploaded to Spotify. I mean, that's a staggering amount of music. So not only is it more difficult to be discovered, but also because of the way that uh, the streaming services pay. In, in, in the paradoxical way, the more users and the more music is there, the less money is distributed, especially to musicians at the lower, uh, the lower end uh, it, or, or the tail, uh, the thinner end of the tail. So with United Masters for me and the Apple deal, that's an interesting move by Apple in effectively investing in this new, uh, new independent uh, artist community, if you will, that's emerging and really showing faith that the music industry has growth beyond the major superstars. We're already seeing the independent music sector for the first time breaking the billion-dollar revenue stream. Uh, And I believe this will continue to accelerate. I think something that we have not seen yet with streaming is the creation of what many people have termed uh, of an artistic middle class. I'm very hopeful that gradually with companies like Apple uh, coming into the fray through investments like the one they're doing with United Masters, that this this will change uh, the game and frankly change the experience of discovering music for all of us as consumers. In terms of musicians that... Um, change the way we live. I mean, I'm in Berlin, right, Um, where David Bowie uh, spent a large part of of his life, and he's kind of a generational, um, you know, force. Uh, Radiohead, I listened to the OK Computer record um, for the first time when I lived here about 20 years ago, and that is just, um, you know, a, a, a band that's up there, you know, on the on the mountain with the Stones and and Zeppelin. Who is the new? Who are the new kids that are going to be like the new Radiohead? Is there such a thing anymore, or is it just so diverse um, due to the democratization of uh, you know the internet? Frankly, I think it's I think it's both. I, I think that um, 
we're seeing maybe a plethora of choices, but there are so many amazing artists that are coming about that are really using all this new media to, again, create new expressions and new ways of connecting with fans. We're even seeing right now the rise of non-fungible tokens or NFTs, and I know that right now a lot of people are dismissing them as a fad. But I think the story that's not been written yet is how are artists creating uh, or, or embracing this new medium that for the first time since the advent of the digital era, you can actually have limited copies, whether it's one or 10 or 20, um, that are audiovisual in nature. Uh, how are they embracing them to create, again, new kinds of connections and new kinds of, of, of art forms? So for me, um, I'm very hopeful uh, about uh, the, uh, the industry, uh, the artistry that's coming out of it. You're seeing collaborations, even if you just saw the Grammy Awards. Look at the diversity that exists there, right? Yep. You would have never seen, even just a few years ago. Uh, Dua Lipa is part uh, Albanian. Uh, you have Bruno Mars teaming up with Anderson Pack, and, and he's part Korean, uh, and, and uh, as is Bruno Mars, part yep. Filipino. Um, so... I actually am very hopeful of, of the industry, not just in terms of growth, but in terms of diversity and discovery of all kinds yep. of new amazing artists. That'll be interesting to see, and it's fascinating to see how this industry is evolving. Panos Pane, Senior Vice President for Global Strategy and Innovation at the Berkeley College of Music. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.